In America, poverty is commonly seen as a personal failure. Actually, it's a result of bad policy. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Poverty in America never came up in the presidential debates. It's hardly a peripheral issue. Nearly 40 million people in the United States live below the poverty line, which is extremely low to start with. They experience actual food insecurity. There are people going hungry in 2021. And how many of us know how long that's going to continue? Uh, The poverty threshold is uh, for a single person under 65 was an annual income of $12,760. For a family of four, $26,200. That's extremely low. Despite both parties agreeing to, as they said, end welfare as we know it, the percentage of people in poverty has grown. Nearly 70% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. Well, poverty is often painted to reflect a personal failure or a deficiency of character or knowledge. It's more often than not actually the result of bad policy. Water, food, housing, the continuation of poverty is a decision that has been made by policymakers. With key policy changes, we could eradicate poverty in this country within our lifetime. But we need to make the decision and to get started now. And though the powers that be have long tried to convince us we as citizens are powerless, we are not. So far, our attempted solutions have fallen short because they try to fix poor people rather than address the underlying problems. Fortunately, it's much easier and far more effective to fix policy than people. As author Emily Bazelon said of the new book that we'll take a look at today, it explains why Americans must fix the problem of poverty rather than blaming it on the people it affects. Our guest today is Joanne Goldblum, co-author of Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Joanne Goldblum is a CEO and founder of the National Diaper Bank Network. Yes, you heard that right. Encompassing more than 200 member organizations that provide diapers and other basic needs to families across America. In 2018, she founded the Alliance for Period Supplies, which provides free hygiene projects. Uh, products to the one in four people for whom menstruation means difficulty attending school or work. Joanne has spent her career working with and advocating for families and policies. She's uh, poverty. She's written op-eds for the Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, and Huffington Post. She's been uh, an ABC Person of the Week and the subject of profiles by CNN, People, and many other outlets on the media. The book does not just illustrate 
the problems. It features action items readers can use to combat poverty, both nationwide and in our local communities, and including the most effective public policies we can support and how to work hand-in-hand with representatives to affect sorely needed change. Well, thank you very much for being with us and uh, sitting through that long introduction, Joanne Goldblum. How did you and Colleen Shaddix come to write this book? Who is the target audience? And if you could also tell us about the method of research. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Colleen and I have been working together for many years. Um, I'm a social worker and she is a journalist. And we have um, very, very similar beliefs and similar commitment to figuring out ways to address poverty in the United States. I have always looked at addressing poverty through the lens of material basic necessities, talking about the small things that most policymakers don't think about. They tend to think about the big picture things. And so Colleen and I have been talking about writing a book for some time. And about three years ago, it really crystallized for both of us. And we decided to um, really just try to do this because we felt like the way that we think about this is different than what other people have talked about before. So we felt like there was a place for this book. Um, And the, the method of research was, you know, as I said, Colleen is a journalist. So she's really, really good at finding people. Um, And we made a very conscious decision that we needed to show what poverty across the country looked like, not what poverty in one place looked like. And, And that is one of the significant differences about our book than many others. We interviewed people all over the country, um, about many different things. And we felt like it was really important because there is so much of a myth in America that poverty affects one group of people um, specifically or is just seen in cities. You know, there are sort of all of these ideas. and, And we know that's not true. So we talked to people in cities, in suburbs, in rural areas. Um, you know, we spoke to people, um, you know, indigenous people in Alaska. You know, we, we really were committed to making sure that we were representing what poverty in the United States looks like. Interesting. And I, you made me think of uh, during Franklin Roosevelt's time, one of the things that made a difference was sending photographers out and journalists out to record what's really going on in America. And when people could see that, you know, not just, as you say, in the inner cities, but people in low-density states, uh, it's really hard. I mean, just seeing a doctor or whatever, but we, it's important to, to be able to see that. And mm-hmm. what's amazing to me is what's designated as the official poverty level. I, I don't think most people are familiar with that. Tell us, please, about the government's working definition of poverty and then about what you call a new and better 
measure the self-sufficiency metric. So two questions there. Excellent. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about these because this is something that, um, you know, Colleen and I have thought about quite a bit. And so, you know, what we know is that the federal poverty level for a family of three is $21,720 a year. And to put that in perspective, you know, we um, looked at some information about a market report finding that the median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in the United States in early 2020 was almost $1,200 a month. That would consume two-thirds of that income of $21,720 a year. So what that shows us is that some a family living at or below the federal poverty level who needs to pay market rent would not have money left for the other necessities that they have. Um, you know, commonly in the United States, programs that are run through the government or that, that use sort of government um, statistics will serve people up to 200% of the federal poverty level. And that's because we recognize that the federal poverty level is just too low. Um, you know, and it's part of what we really believe it's it's part of the U.S.'s refusal to face poverty, you know, that we have this level of economic segregation. And it means that if you're a person of wealth, you don't live next to, door to a person in poverty. And it means we literally don't, you know, see yeah. people who are different from ourselves. Um and, and what we, you know, you brought up that we, we think there's a better way, and there is, and we, we did not come up with it. It's called the self-sufficiency standard. And what's interesting about the self-sufficiency standard is that it is calculated by um, not just state, but community within the state. So recognizing that in different areas, even within a state, there are very different costs associated with the cost of living. Um, and and what, it, what it shows mostly across the country is that you need to have, you need twice the federal poverty level to support a family in the United States. Yeah, it's really, uh, back when I was in the state Senate, we'd look at uh, meals for children in schools and they'd have to be uh, 150% of the poverty level before they could uh, qualify for uh, free and reduced lunches. And it it was amazing to me. I You're right. I, I don't come in contact with people who are so desperately poor. And, you know, until we see it, until we get it really, you know, you can just forget about it. Just forget about it. Mm-hmm. We don't see mm-hmm. it. Well, you know, one of the, I think most difficult problems I can imagine, and it's really grave is in American culture, is self-blame. Of course, people are responsible for their own lives in many ways, but not if it's not a level playing field at the start of the game. Those concrete factors 
are, they're just unavoidable. There's this great and powerful myth in America that we are unique and exceptional land of opportunity, and those who end up in poverty only ultimately have themselves to blame. You challenge that frame, arguing it's not the people, but the policies and system we've put in place that's responsible for poverty's widespread continuation. Please say more about that. Sure. So I, I think, um, you know, and I, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about this because that is really the thesis of our book is that people don't, for example, fail to change the diaper on their baby because they don't want their baby to be clean, dry and healthy. It's because they simply can't afford it. The gap between what U.S. Americans earn and what they need is simply too large. And so, you know, what we talk about in the book is there's a um, there's an old adage, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. And what that says is it assumes there's something wrong with the person. It's a lack of knowledge, a lack of ambition, a lack of willingness. And our society has this horror of supplying people with things, right? When someone's hungry, we believe the most sensible thing to do is to give them food. Once they're properly nourished, then you can talk about you know, their hunting and gathering skills, right? What if you're terrific at fishing, but you live in a landlocked state? or an area where pollution has killed off all the fish. You know, how do you, if you're too weak with hunger, walk down to the river to go fishing? You know, everything starts with basic needs. And imagine trying to get your life back in order when you haven't eaten. You know, it's ridiculous. And we are so averse to the idea that Everybody is doing the best they can, you know, and that really has to be, you know, in a society, what we, what we believe about each other. And we, yeah, so much of that is, is about belief. Yes. Uh, just in case, for those people who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Joanne Goldblum, co-author of Broke in America, seeing, understanding, and ending U.S. poverty. It, it, it seems to me that uh, changing that attitude that, oh, if they're poor, they you know, either deserve it or they're not, uh, you know, they don't care about getting ahead. How do we change that attitude? It's, it's so difficult, I think, because, again, you know, people don't see it. But I, I, I would think that in order for that to be on the agenda of, of federal legislation. We got to break through that. And, and how is that going on? Well, you know, it's, I, I think that that is the biggest question. And what we believe and what we talk about in the book is that, you know, generally speaking, we are very quick to forgive people who we feel like we know, right? So people who we think are like ourselves. 
And we are fairly quick to demonize people who are different from ourselves. And so what we really try to do and hope we can do in to some degree with this book is remind people that, you know, as you talked about at the, at, at the beginning, we have to level the playing field. And if the playing field isn't level, we really aren't starting in the same place. And that's really why at the beginning, when I started the work I, I do, I started with diapers because babies are generally speaking, people are more willing to um, think about helping babies than they are to think about Uh helping the mother of that baby. Right. And so because we think about the mother, we have lots of elected officials who are willing to say, well, she shouldn't have had that baby if she couldn't afford that baby. Right. Um, You have no idea, Bert. I hear it every day. Um, Mm. Right. Men men have nothing to do with that, of course. No, no, nothing. Yeah, no, that's, that's for another conversation, but absolutely. Um, You know, um, but, but so since as a society, we're somewhat willing to throw mom off to the side, Mm. we've said, okay, you know, think what you want, but you've got a baby, a baby who is here and needs to be taken care of. And so we really try to take the conversation away from the person and more to talk about the need and to talk about what it is that that person is trying to do and what it is that they actually um, need to do and, and we need to do in order to support that person. Um, does, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And putting the blame on the person. You know, everybody mm-hmm. wants food and shelter. And there's been this myth in America that, uh, you know, there's not enough to go around. We have to, you can give all the money in the world and more to uh, weapons contractors. But when it comes to people who happen to be poor, oh, no, no, that's that's against my morals. It's just bizarre to me. But that's the way it's been for a while. And you talk about diapers. When COVID first hit, as you know, there were huge rushes on toilet paper. It's a basic mm-hmm. basic need that you know people don't think about, but it's like, oh, you know, that's the most basic thing. And what the basic need for young families that virtually no one thinks about is diapers, access to diapers. Tell us, please, about your work with this overlooked but absolute necessity. Sure. So, you know, it's funny. I started thinking about diapers. It actually was because of toilet paper. I am a social worker, as I said, and uh, 15, 17 years ago, I was working at Yale Child Study Center doing community-based social work, which meant I went to people's houses and worked with them on different things that were going on. And what these families had in common was that they were all very, very poor. Um, you know, they, some had substance use issues, some had mental health issues, some had, you know, different, different things going on in their lives. They all had young children. And I was working with a mom 
who was developmentally disabled and she had three children under three and they never had toilet paper in their house ever. And it was, it was an issue and there were a lot of different things going on. And I asked her once why she didn't use her food stamps to buy diapers. And she said, you know, you can't. And I, and there I was, right. I'm a social worker. I'm working at Yale. I think I really understand this stuff. And I started looking into it and it was true, right? You can't use those things. And it was something that at the time, it's much more, um, more people know about this now, but at the time, even our elected officials weren't really clear on this, right? Because when policy is written, it's written on a very high level. They don't think about sort of the specifics. Um, And so, you know, I, I finally realized, and it took me longer, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that the only answer to the fact that she didn't have toilet paper was buying her toilet paper. Like there was no clinical intervention that was going to change what was happening in her home, except buying toilet paper because she didn't have the money for it. And I, I come to all of this as, um, you know, social workers were taught that we have to maintain boundaries, that we can't buy things for our clients, we can't give things to our clients. And, you know, it, it, it took a good amount of time for me to really realize that the fact is, she wasn't going to be able to change the way her children were growing up without the things she needed. And I started giving her diapers Mm -hmm. and it made me, and because she, I also had um, seen her empty solids out of the diaper and put it back on. Um, And again, I know she loved her children, Mm -hmm. right? I know that she individually wanted her children to have a better life than she had. And she didn't have the money. And so that's really where all of my work on mm. diapers and material basic needs comes from. And and what was the program that you headed up? What was it called? National Diaper Bank? So yes, so I started first the New Haven Diaper Bank, which is now the Diaper Bank of Connecticut. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, is what I started about 17 years ago. Right. And nobody, you're right. People, people just don't think about it. Everybody wants, you know, their kids to be healthy, of course. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, to blame the individual is just, it's been the way for a long time. And, you know, politics obviously has a lot to do with what laws get passed and don't get passed. And I remember mm-hmm. political buttons that said, Stop Reagan's war on the poor. And both parties mm-hmm. have done things. What was specifically with regard to Ronald Reagan? What was that all about? And and tell us about the legacy of his presidency on poverty in America. Sure. Well, you know, I, I believe that Ronald Reagan and his presidency was the beginning of the end of the social safety net in the United States. He, um, 
single-handedly changed the um, the way that food went out to families as a part of, um, you know, used to be called food stamps, now it's called SNAP. Um, and if you look, food banks really began during the Reagan era. And it, it wasn't necessary, or not as necessary prior to that. Um, and if you go back and look at the history of food banking, many of them started with money from FEMA because it was seen as a disaster. You know, the fact that people in the United States didn't have food. Yeah, well, people act when there's a disaster, but not until. And go ahead. No, I was just going to say exactly. And it's, it's, you know, yes, a lot of this started with Reagan. Um, and I have to say that it hasn't gotten much better. You know, even when we're under, you know, regardless of the administration, you know, yes, it's incredibly exciting that um, our new president is talking about raising the minimum wage in the really public and direct way that he is. But we've had many policies over the years that really have hurt people um, mm. and and pushed more people into poverty. You know, federally safe federal safety net programs lift millions of Americans, including children, out of poverty. But they could and should do so much more. They are always on the chopping block yes. and always the first thing to go. So it's interesting that the policies have actually made things worse. Well, what about the uh, the idea that uh, Bill Clinton attached himself to uh, doing away with welfare as we know it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, TANF has done, TANF is um, sure. the new program that he started, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, yeah. has really, you know, hurt a lot of people and driven a lot of families further into deep poverty. Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about TANF, right? It was, it was created welfare to work. Um, and the way that the president was able to make it a bipartisan program and to have it pass was to include quite a bit that actually, um, you know, for example, one of one of the things that most don't know about that's in the um, TANF regulation is a lifetime ban on drug felonies. So if you have committed a drug felony, only a drug felony, you can be banned for life from receiving TANF or SNAP benefits. So right. if, if so, so if somebody breaks into a house, that's you're good. You, you can still get support. It is a thinly oh veiled racial dog oh. whistle. Um, you know, and many states, you know, I have to say in all transparency, many states have um, removed some of those rules. Um, but 
it, it really, so that was one major thing and that, that most people just don't know about. There also was another really interesting and extremely upsetting um, regulation included, and it was called the Maximum Family Grant. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. So it included policy that said, if you apply for and receive TANF benefits and you have three children, you'll get a certain amount of money. But if you have another child Uh. while you are receiving TANF benefits, your budget, what you get, the, the cash assistance you get, will not increase. And that's true regardless of how many children you had going in or how many children you have going out. And again, many states have done away with this, but it's important to keep it in mind because it really is how the program was structured. It was structured with this idea that came forward during the Reagan era of the welfare queen, Mm -hmm. right? We all, we remember that. And this idea that women would have babies in order to get more money. And what we've proven over and over again is that the maximum family grant didn't matter. It didn't change the birth rate. It didn't do anything except push families further into poverty. Mm. Brilliant. Now, I, I wonder about, about you know, and, and so much of this sounds mean-spirited and punitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wonder about, you know, there's been questions about funding for uh, reproductive choices, i.e. abortion. You know, that, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if, if women can use... Uh, uh, welfare money at all to to help pay for abortions so that they don't have any more kids. My guess is the uh, uh, evangelical uh, power that right wing that that there's been doesn't allow that. So we talked about starting from a level playing field. There's no level playing right. field. If, go ahead. If they can't have access to yeah, it. No, just, just to, um, just to just because there's actually a sort of, interesting but very fine point about TANF dollars. One is that if you get cash assistance and the number of people who get cash assistance is very, very slim because of the way that the program was structured, that it's time limited and you know there are all sorts of requirements. Very, very few people get it. But if you do get it, that cash can be used for anything, uh-huh. right? Because it is cash. And uh-huh. it's always, I always just feel like it's important to say that. Sure. Now, the, you know, $400 a month you get isn't going to pay for very much, but that's mm. the one way in which, and, and the amount of money you get, it's, it's actually sort of fascinating, varies quite a bit from state to state. Oh, wow. um, because TANF is a block grant, which means that states get it and can choose how they spend it. You know, there, there are some, there are requirements, you know, it's within certain guidelines, but the money, you know, doesn't, there, there are several tenants to TANF. One of them is um, supporting marriage, mm-hmm. traditional marriage. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of states use that money in in really 
a, a variety of ways and it's, and it's all legal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, to make the choice between food or toilet paper or diapers and, you know, getting an abortion on four hundred dollars a month, well, it's a little difficult. Whoa, for those right, right. for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Joanne Goldblum, who is a co-author of Broke in America: Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. And uh, water is certainly an issue. Uh, it's become a big issue the more demand there is. And it's not just an issue in Flint and in Baltimore, but a growing number of towns and cities across the country. How has water and infrastructure more generally become what you call a major poverty issue? Right. Well, you know, one in 10 American households cannot afford their water bill. And that was according to a 2017 University of Michigan study. Um, they and, and the authors of that study predict that the rate will increase, um, you know, to, to one in three. And that was prior to COVID. Um, you know, we interviewed a man who spends $20 a week on bottled water to flush his toilet. Oh, my. Right, because his city water was shut off for non-payment. You know, we, I'm sorry, I just uh, lost focus for a second there. We we found many Flint-like communities where people, always poor people and people of color, were drinking unsafe water. One woman told us she actually dropped out of school, and in part it was because of her hygiene. Her home, like 30% of those on Navajo reservations, Mm -hmm. didn't have indoor plumbing. We spoke to so many people who didn't have indoor plumbing. You know, and you would think that is not something that is true in the United States, right? But it is. Um, So many of us think that water is a third world or a developing country issue. Um, It's funny. I actually recently had a conversation with my son who's 23 about water. And he had said, well, isn't water free? Right. Right. As it should be. Of course. Um, Right. And, and so many people, like we said, can't afford their water bill. And it's it's just um, it's untenable. And it, we we've become a a society we and much of the world that has we depend on utilities, heat, water, you know, roofs over our head, and if if we can't, you know, these are things that I would think you know if were to consider the what national security really means it's not these gargantuan zillion dollar weapon systems you know it's people having enough to eat enough water and education i think is part of that as well and people often say well you know conventional wisdom is that with education everyone has the tools to lift themselves up uh speak to that assumption please and what conditions of poverty inhibit a student's performance performance and what contributes to low graduation rates 
You know, just you can't just lift yourself up by the bootstraps just just because you got some degree of education. Right. You know, so many people ask that question and it's such a, um, it's so big, you know, it's, it's such a big question. The, the number of things that hold students back is so large, right? So, you know, you're starting with, um, you know, this idea of an even playing field. And when you look at schools, that just isn't true a lack of water actually can impact a child's performance in school or a person's performance in school because we have to think about laundry and hygiene. You know, when a child goes to school dirty, teachers, school social workers, school nurses, we're all mandated reporters, right? And that means we are required to call the child welfare system if we see a child who we think is not being cared for adequately and a child who comes to school in dirty clothes, a child who smells, a child who doesn't go to the doctor when they're sick, that is a child who is not going to succeed. You know, so that's, that's one part of it. I think another really major issue in education um, and in terms of graduation for kids who grow up in poverty is that there's so much more going on in their families. You know, we did a whole chapter on education and we interviewed, mm-hmm. we went to a town called Lytle, Texas and interviewed a number of people there, including two incredibly strong students who were seniors, both of whom got full rides to, you know, good four year colleges Uh and they were not able to go. They made the decision not to go because they had responsibilities at home. One um, was the person who supported their family. Their father was um, deceased and the mother was disabled and there were younger children in the home Mm. and that young man needed to support his younger siblings. So that was one. The other wasn't going because he, um, his dad had been incarcerated and, and was out, but was being audited. Now this was a man who was a waiter. Um, He was being audited because he had, although he was living separately from the family, he claimed his children as dependents because he was supporting them. And he felt that, you know, he he had done it in what he considered, you know, he thought that he had filled it out correctly. But because he was being audited, this kid was not able to fill out the FAFSA forms. You know, sort of all of these complications um, Mm. that just make life so much more difficult. Um, You know, you hear both, um, you hear that people um, think that college is the answer, but at the same time, you hear that we think people, you know, if you look at all of the conversation lately, you know, there's this amazing push towards forgiving 
college debt. debt. Right. You know, but you have people who say, well, I paid, but right. you get it for free. Right. You know, and, and that honestly, I think is our biggest problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have this idea, well, it was hard for me and I did it. So I, um, you know, I shouldn't, somebody else shouldn't have it easier than I have it. Of course, we hear that a lot. And the the whole punitive kind of aspect to it that, uh, you know, I'm deserving, but those other people are not deserving. I mean, who the heck is to say what's deserving? Do all these weapons contractors, do they deserve to get such a large share of our tax dollars? And I, I wonder how much you perceive, you're out in the field, you check these things and have a sense of it. The attitude may be changing. I don't know if it is or not. I, I, I'm i really not sure. I mean, I was glad, very glad to hear President Biden uh, say, you know, mention, quote, systemic racism in his inaugural speech. I think that's a big step. But Huge. Yeah, it is huge. But, but what about this... You know, a lot of the uh, the right wing talk about family values. It amazes me how some of the policies that they uh, insist on end up destroying families like you were talking about, you know, being tough, being punitive. That's that doesn't help family values. It's just the absolute opposite of that. Do you sense any kind of change in this all important attitude? It's going to take a while, I'm guessing. So, um. I do. I am optimistic because I think one of the things that's happened is that we've moved, we're we're seeing a more reflective democracy, right? We're seeing people be elected who have had lives and who look like much more of the population, right? We have many more women. We have many more people of color who are going into positions of power. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will help to change the the attitude to some degree, because I think that, I think that when you have diversity in the um, areas of people making decisions, more decisions are made that will support people who have different needs, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes all the sense in the world. And, and you know the, not to harp on the far right, but oh, what the heck? They've for a long time, you know, wanted just white Protestant men to rule. Mm-hmm. Everybody else can't. Mm-hmm. And and the administration now, there's a lot more women, people of color. Uh, Native American is head of the. Uh, if mm-hmm. she gets confirmed to the head of the uh, Department of the Interior, which is fabulous in my opinion. And so, right. you know, TV when I grew up. There were no black people on TV at all. Right. Uh, right. But h- how is that changing? T- TV and cinema, you know, that, that reflects our culture and sort of drives it as well. How Is that changing? So that is um, something we've talked about a lot. And we actually write in the book that there's very little coverage of people who are poor, certainly in movies. Um, there was a study done a few years ago that basically showed there were only two movies that ever really showed, um, had a main character 
who was living in poverty. And those were my fair lady and um, lady in the tramp. Right. So we really don't have a lot of, we don't see it very much in popular culture. I do think it's changing. Um, You know, like you said, we now see true diversity when you're watching television in terms of race. Right. Um, So that is a beginning. And I think that as more diver- there's more diversity in people who are writing what we're watching, mm-hmm. there will be more diversity in who we see. Yeah, it's interesting. We don't see uh, people living in poverty as, as the main characters. We just never do, or right. even significant. I mean, my thought was back to Grapes of Wrath, which is a really old movie. It's mm-hmm. been a long time. You're right. So we're not right. So- and and when you do see people living in poverty, you often see it from the perspective of some, you know, cataclysmic event. Uh-huh. You know, it's always because of something, not just because. <laughs> wow. And people blaming themselves. That just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I know that's exceedingly mm-hmm. pervasive. And it's it's very hard to work with. But I think in the 1930s, one of our greats, FDR, had a, a program that many programs, you know, there are bread lines and creating jobs uh, and, and welfare, uh, started to, I think, communicate that, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Right. But that's very, very hard one for people to do. And I think it's probably reversed since that time. And one of the big pro- programs uh, is, uh, is supporting housing, but it's really not, it, it's lacking. It, it doesn't do affordable housing subsidies. It, it's the mortgage interest deduction that homeowners receive. Uh, what shifts do you recommend the government implement to bring, bring our policy in line with actual need when it comes to this issue? When it comes to housing, right, housing matters so much. It is, um, you know, U.S. Americans are struggling to stay housed because wages have been growing, have not been growing significantly while housing costs have soared. Um, You know, affordable by government standards is 30% of your income. Right. And that's just not what most of us pay most Americans pay considerably more than that. Mm. And that means people have to skimp on other things like heat. Um, We spoke with a woman who trained low-income women for well-paying construction jobs, and she said many of them dropped out over the winter because they were getting sick from their unheated apartments. Um, So so again, lacking basic needs um, makes you more vulnerable and makes it harder to get out of poverty. You know, we, we think that when it comes to housing, as with so many other things, the, the gap between housing, between what we have in terms of American, you know, in, in terms of the amount of money we have, and the amount we have to spend is not, um, it, it, they just, the gap is too large. Um, 
and show what we you know, we believe there are a variety. We believe there are a variety of um, ways to address that, and it can be specific to housing, or it can be more general, right? So, you know, we talk a lot about raising the wage, sure. so making it so that people can afford, you know, because I, I guess I just have to go back for one second and say, sure. most people living in poverty are working. They're working one, two, three jobs, working much harder than I've ever had to work. Mm. Um, and so, Paying people a living wage would, of course, address that issue. There's the issue of universal basic income. Yes. You know, that's a possibility. Um, there are so many possibilities, but it really is just a matter of looking at the gap. And there's so much research that shows us what that is and looking at the ways to fill that gap. And it can be, you know, directly through housing. Certainly providing more affordable housing is essential. Like right now, there's actually a very interesting thing going on in a town in Connecticut called Woodbridge, where there is a lawsuit trying to change the zoning regulation. The only thing they're trying to change it, it's a, it's a suburban town that has large lot sizes and requires significant setbacks from the um, street, you know, all sorts of this, the, the zoning regulations that often make up sort of wealthy suburban areas. The, what they're trying to do is just make it so that it is legal for six people who are not related to live at the same address. They're not trying to change the number of people who can live any place. They're not trying to um, ask for it to be turned into multifamily housing. Mm. Just allowing unrelated people to live mm. in a home. And that is being met. You know, people are against it people who live there. And, and so when you look at our zoning regulations, mm -hmm. they, they really, really do make it so that, um, you know, many people are not able to access housing. And that mm -hmm. is one of the things we talk about quite a bit in the book. And it's one of the things that we actually recommend as one of, one of the many things that people can do um, is every community has a zoning yes. board or a zoning commission. And it's really hard to get people to be on those. Mm -hmm. So anybody who lives in a certain community can, you know, ask to be appointed, can run depending on however your community does that. But, but then you can be a voice for affordable housing. And people don't realize, I, I was on committees a long time ago uh, trying to help out the uh, New Hampshire Housing Authority. You know, some people are afraid. Oh, we don't want those people in our neighborhood. Right. But once they, right. <laughs> once they live there, I was just reading this morning about uh, the newly elected senator from Georgia, uh, Rep uh, mm -hmm. Reverend Warnock, who I guess his campaign ad, what worked was he was walking his his dog, or maybe it was a baby, I'm not sure, in a white neighborhood, and it was just fine. 
<laughs> just uh-huh. you need uh-huh. that sort of image. Now, redlining doesn't happen anymore officially. You know, the, the, it was bank policies to, I mean, specifically not give mortgages to people of color. It, it's no longer legal to do that, but it does it continue in other new ways? Yes, it absolutely does. What a surprise. Um, you know, we, so wealth accumulation, the primary way that wealth accumulation happens in this country is through home ownership sure. mm-hmm. and the appreciation of that home. And we know that people of color have had their opportunities to own home diminished by redlining yes. and other policies that were purposely designed for this. And it hasn't ended. We um, write about a redlining case that was only settled in 2019. And we found, yeah, we found numerous examples of predatory lenders consciously targeting black and Latinx communities because they knew that these people faced barriers to getting standard credit. And you see bad actors coming into these places, breaking the law, stealing families' assets, and it goes on for decades because these financial crimes are complex and very hard to prosecute. And unfortunately, our criminal legal system is you know, more keen on prosecuting black people than protecting them. <laughs> I've noticed that. Yes, indeed. Well, the bad news is, and we, we could talk a lot more, so many more issues to talk about, the bad news of, of growing economic inequities and, and deeper poverty, as you say, in all, is also an opportunity. How so? How is the bad news of growing economic inequities and deepening poverty also an opportunity? We see it as an opportunity because it is becoming so much clearer. Uh We can't ignore it anymore. Uh We just can't. It's everywhere. And I do think that, you know, I'm sure you recall a year or two ago, there was research that came out that people, a lot of people were talking about that said that, you know, 40% of Americans don't have enough to fix their car if they fell on hard times, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the bank. That's, that is becoming more and more the reality. And when you get to, half of the country not having enough money. It, it's no longer a fringe issue. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and what that means is that we can change it and that we are now in a position to stand up for policies that raise pay, give people access to resources on you know the, the local, state, and national level. And a few other things to talk about. Homelessness. You know, sometimes police go in and kick people out of certain areas. They put spikes into onto the grounds, under bridges, and other places where people have slept. It's just a mess. You contend it would actually be rather simple to fix the vast majority of homelessness. Do tell. Give people a place to live. <laughs> you know, I'm really, I'm not being sure. flippant, oh, I and know. I know it sounds so crazy. But that's it. You know, the issue with homelessness is housing. And again, we go back to this idea that all we want to do is fix people. Uh-huh. And, you know, so there, there are a few different issues with homelessness, uh, you know, with, with housing. Um, 
You know, one is that so much, so many of the services that are available and so many housing options have, you know, various requirements, um, you know, you uh, need to be sober, you need to be employed, um, you know, you need to be able to show you have a pay stub, you know, things that mm. when you're living on the streets, you don't have, you don't have. And so, you know, we are so concerned with how poor people behave, right? Mm. Nobody, you know, we, you know, Liquor is legal. Marijuana is legal in many places. You know, but when people who are poor are using those things, yeah. we see them as, you know, people are so willing to say, well, I don't want to give them money. They're going to buy beer. Right. But why do they sell beer? I mean, and, and again, I don't mean to be flippant, but like it's available. And, you know, we have this idea that, well, if you have... If, if you're not, at, you know, that, that if the government is giving you anything and the government gives us all so much. So, right, mortgage deduction is the biggest single housing program we have in the United States. Mm. No one has ever talked to <laughs> to me or probably any other homeowner about their drug or alcohol use <laughs> ever. Right. When you go to the bank, they don't say how often do you drink? Oh my goodness. But when it comes to section eight housing, we're right. totally happy to do that. <sighs> and, and I, I think that that it's just such a, um, you know, it, it, there's such a disconnect. Oh my goodness. It's huge. Ah, and and the judgments that are involved here, uh, you know, uh, it's it's amazing. There's so much more to talk about and more to do. I'm I'm pleased that I think the attitudes, as you say, are starting to change. It's really oftentimes through no fault of their own. And and that story you just told about, you know, those of us who have mortgage deductions, uh, you know, the interest payments are deducted. Uh, they don't ask us. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. The book is called Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Joanne Goldblum is co-author with Colleen Shaddix. Uh, thank you so much. I, I'm hopeful with a new, an adult in the presidency uh, who's really mm -hmm. actually wants to serve the good of the country, that uh, perhaps then this can be possible. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's so important. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. My bills are all due and the baby needs shoes and I'm busted. Cotton is down to a quarter I got a cow that went by and a hen that won't lay. A big stack of bills that gets bigger each day. The county's gonna haul my belongings away cause I'm busted. I 
went to my brother to ask for a loan Cause I was busted I hate to beg like a dog without his bone But I'm busted My brother said there ain't a thing I can do My wife and my kids are all down with the flu 